Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning, and let's go to Luke chapter 8. And we are heading into a three-chapter section of the Gospel of Luke over the next several weeks that's just been marvelous for me to read again over and over again and to study it, and it's going to be thrilling as we sort of make our way through it. But he keeps bringing out a particular theme in these next three chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, that really become the heart and soul of what happened in Jesus' ministry when he would teach and when he would preach and proclaim the truth. The issue was whether or not people had the ears to hear. I love how the Lord combines the music that we sing without Dan and I really spending any time talking about it. Uh, there, there will just be these great thematic connections with the next text. And that song we just sung was just so marvelous. You know, words of power that can never fail. Let your truth prevail over unbelief. It's true that the Word of God has invested in it the, the character and the nature of God Himself, and therefore it is God's power that opens eyes and unstops the deaf ears to the truth. That's precisely what was the watershed core issue Every time Jesus spoke, and it is, of course, the same today when we speak, when we teach the word or proclaim it or our ministry gives the word of God and the gospel to a community around us, it is the same issue. Do they have ears to hear it? I love Ken Ramey's little book, Expository Listening. We have it in our bookstore if you're interested in it. It's a great read because it talks about the... Listening that you do when a sermon is preached. What kind of listening do you do as a Christian? In his opening, this is what he says, hearing is a precious thing. The Apostle Paul says hearing is required for us even to have faith. Faith comes from hearing. But hearing is not enough. There's also heeding. And not all of those who hear heed That is to say, even if the trillions of tiny pulsations of air pressure reach the unimaginably intricate machinery in your inner ear, where they are inexplicably translated into words that form ideas into your brain, you might not actually listen. You might choose to do nothing with the information. In fact, there may be any number of problems with your hearing. It could be that you simply lack the discernment to know whether what you're listening to is biblical or not. Perhaps you've sought out preaching that only makes you feel better about yourself. Or perhaps the preaching is good, but you're burned out on listening. And it seems like all you do is listen while experiencing little growth and change in your life. Week after week, good sermons go in and out of the ear without ever penetrating your mind or piercing your heart and transforming your life. Perhaps you have the desire to obey, but you're listening to so much that's not important or even accurate that you've trained yourself to only half listen, a habit you can't seem to turn off on Sundays. We are in a desperate need of both theological and practical wisdom in the area of listening effectively to the Word of God. And then he says this, becoming a better listener begins by establishing a basic theology of listening, a biblical Audiology, he calls it. That is the heart and core issue of these next three chapters in Luke's gospel. 
And that's because this became the very watershed issue in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere he went, he spoke, and people heard it, they heard the words, and some of them had ears to hear. In other words, some of them had a soft heart. Some of them were willing to listen with ears and eyes of faith, with a sense of themselves that was right and honest. They heard of their sinful condition, and they began to believe it. They heard they needed forgiveness, and they began to accept that reality. They heard the message that Jesus is the only way to God, and they jettisoned all other messiahs or would-be saviors. They heard him claim to be the sent one from God who would be the savior of sinners, and they saw themselves rightly as one who needed a savior. And because they had ears to hear, because they had softened hearts and humility about their condition, and because they were beginning to believe, they came under the conviction that they are lost and without hope. Their ears were opened up, and they heard the word, and they received it for what it really is. It was truth from God, and they accepted it by faith, and their mind and their heart suddenly began to see the truth rightly. On the other hand, there were many in the crowd who were just the opposite. They had no ears to hear, no eyes to see, and the reaction was obvious. They denied that their condition was all that sinful. They might have been warned of coming judgment, and they might have thought, ah, it'd be nice to have forgiveness of my mistakes, but they weren't even certain that there is a God who's going to judge, and they didn't see why being forgiven was all that essential. They heard Jesus speaking and teaching and preaching, but they'd already concluded that their path was probably as good as any other religious path, and so they didn't see how Jesus could be the only way. They didn't really believe they needed a Savior. They heard the Word of God, and instead of being filled with a softness toward God and an interest and of being drawn, they were filled with contempt, and they began in that contempt to see that they needed proof further than Jesus' mere words. They were listening, but they weren't hearing. This is always the core issue when the word of God is proclaimed. David Clarkson had this to say about the importance and the connection between how you hear the truth from God and the eternal condition of your soul. He said this, hearing is the provision made for the soul's eternal well-being. Its everlasting welfare depends on it. If you fail here, your souls perish without remedy. For salvation comes by faith and faith comes by hearing. It is an act of eternal consequence. According to our hearing, so shall the state of our souls be to eternity. That's right. Eternity is at stake in every sermon. Every counsel you give from God's word, everything you say about Christ, every word from his word that you teach to some disciple, every sermon that you hear or repeat, everything you play, every MP3 file you send, if it's a biblical sermon, if it's an explanation of the truth of God from his word, eternity is at stake. You don't speak the truth playfully and casually and with gimmicks and dressed up with things that attract the culture. You don't couch the truth in some circus show. 
people listen as someone opens the scriptures and that person tries to explain the truth of Christ. Have you ever seen it? People's eyes just glaze over. They just glaze over and it's inexplicable because the gospel's so warm and the gospel's so thrilling and it's so freeing and it offers just the richest of eternal wonders, forgiveness of all your sin. The gospel is the most precious message ever. And yet eyes glaze over, arms cross, irritations bubble up, hostilities, hostilities begin to become entrenched. It's inexplicable. And yet it's because people don't have ears to hear. It's not that the truth itself is unclear. It's because they can't hear it. They have no ears of faith. They've already concluded things about Christ and about the Word and about the Bible and about truth. They've already concluded things that keep them dull, keep their ears stopped up and the blinders on their eyes. Liberalism believes that the Bible is just a an ancient document, no different than any other literary work, and it ought to just be approached like any literary work, and so it should be assessed as non-supernatural. It didn't come from God, it has no supernatural character, and so we ought to just apply to it the literary sciences that we apply to anything else. You see what's happening? They're already, they're already convinced. They already have blinders on. They already have stopped up ears, hardened hearts. They don't believe truth is transcendent. They deny what is obvious on the inner man. The postmodern today comes along and says, no, you know, this Bible is a collection of stories by which we learn about the spiritual experience of humanity. And that's the way we should look at it. It's not objective. It didn't come from outside of us. It must be assessed from within us, and then we determine whether it sounds like truth or not. And then the agnostic comes along and the agnostic denies the authority of Scripture because he says, well, it might contain some things that are from God or maybe spiritual, but it shouldn't be allowed to rule your life. It doesn't have that kind of authority. We, we decide things by situations and our ethics are decided by personal sense of right and wrong. And then the moralist comes along and he says, well, it's a book, it's got some moral principles that you should follow but only because we're making a better life for ourselves as human beings. And so they denied total depravity. They deny that you can't make a better world for yourself, that man is basically good. We just crank up some moral principles. The Bible's just one in a long line of great books. And then even the church, even the professing evangelical church comes along and says, well, we know it's from God and you know, we believe it ought to be spoken, but it's not enough. It's not sufficient. There are contemporary problems it can't solve, contemporary messages that it did not offer, and therefore we've got to look to the world and look to pop culture, and we've got to look to ways to eliminate the alienation and, and offense of the gospel. We've got to look for some way to make this different than just the hard, sort of straightforward truths from Scripture. We've got to open people's ears. You see, it's at this point in Jesus' ministry where this very reality has come to a fever pitch. The leading Jewish hierarchy in Israel is at the point in Jesus' ministry where they are not 
Seeing or hearing with eyes or ears of faith, their heart is hardening, and they are accusing Jesus of some shocking things, and they're pushing the crowd to a showdown because they want Jesus dead. And so as he takes his second tour into Galilee, his second ministry tour into that area results in greater hostility, even as the Pharisees blaspheme him. And so what Jesus is about to do is speak about hearing in a totally new way. In fact, just for a moment, look at Matthew 12, and you notice what the Pharisees did to push this thing to the end of the line for the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute or dumb. And he healed him so that the mute man spoke and he saw. So he's demon-possessed. He's blind and mute. Jesus casts out the demon, gives him sight, and opens his intelligence and his tongue. In the sense that he's no longer incapacitated. He can speak. He can think rationally. The demon is gone. He's completely healed. Verse 23, and all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard it, now that's it. Here you have the message. The crowd is beginning to speak what they have heard and they're beginning to ask questions. Maybe some soft ears and eyes and hearts in the crowd. Could this be the promised ultimate son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, They said, this man casts out demons only by the prince of demons, Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That's what they concluded. He's not the son of David. Verse 25, and knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I, by the prince of demons, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. Look, if I have this kind of power, wow, you better look out even in your own kingdom of darkness. And yet it will still be a kingdom that falls. But verse 28 is the real stunner. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, however, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Wow. Jesus says, look, you, that's the last straw. You cannot accuse the Holy Spirit of being Satan. In fact, he says that, verse 30, he who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven What is he saying? God will harden a person who sees the Lord of glory himself, hears the message that clearly, even witnesses the power of him in that day, up close and personal, and determines that it isn't God's power, it's Satan's. You are that self-righteous, that hardened, that blind, your ears are that stopped up. If that's the case, you know what Jesus did? Matthew 13, he cut them off. He began to speak in parables which veiled the truth to those who didn't have ears to hear it. He veiled the truth. He hid it from him. 
Remember I read in John's gospel that Jesus hid himself from them because he was keeping them from being converted. He did not give them the power to be converted. He didn't give them the message anymore. He was letting them be hardened. If you want to know what Luke is trying to emphasize in these next three chapters, it's that very thing. Go back to Luke chapter 8. Notice the connections. It's absolutely staggering. Verse 8, in the parable of the soils, he says, the other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. (laughs) Jesus would call out in the middle of his messages, if you've got ears to hear, you better listen up. Look at verse 18. Therefore, take care how you listen. In the Greek, it's, a, it's sort of a, a play on the words, see to how you hear. See to it, pay attention to it. Be careful, pay attention, take heed to how you are hearing things. Are you hearing them with faith or are you hardening against them? Verse 21 of chapter eight. He answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Same thing. If you hear the word of God and you hear it with ears of faith, it's going to transform your life and how you live and your devotion to Christ. This is about ears of faith. Verse 25 of chapter 8, as they're in the middle of the ocean and the storm is there, Jesus calms the sea, but he says to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And then from chapter 8, verse 26, all the way to verse 56, it's all about unbelief versus pride, or versus faith. Pride and humility contrasted. Notice verse 49 of chapter 8. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died, don't trouble the teacher anymore. And when Jesus heard this, he said, don't be afraid any longer, only believe and she will be made well. And when he'd come to the house, he didn't allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, stop weeping, she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Think about that. They knew he just healed a a boy and gave him back to his mother when he walked up to a funeral and raised the dead. He comes here to this circumstance. Word is all over the hillside that he could do this. The child has died. Notice it says that in verse 53. They knew that she had died. Jesus says, only believe and she will be healed. Don't weep. Trust me. Listen to my words. And those in the house laughed. They laughed at him. They scoffed. These are ears that don't hear with faith. They don't readily accept God's word. They don't readily accept what Jesus says. When you tell someone the gospel, when you give them the truth about Jesus, when you open the scriptures to them, That's really the same polarizing moment that you see when Jesus is going around the hillside doing what he is doing as Luke will begin to illustrate for us in the weeks ahead in this section. Proclaiming the truth, straightforward, and it just starts to cut down the middle and expose those who will scoff at it. They don't receive it. And you know, sometimes Christians 
are, are so unfamiliar with a strong appetite for truth that even when they come to a church and they hear strong preaching, there's all of this backpedaling and arguing and disputing that goes on with the straightforward truth of Scripture. It is not where God wants you to remain, beloved. If you're saved, he wants you to become oh so soft and full of faith. Whatever Jesus says, I'm in. However he says it, I'm in. Whatever it costs my flesh, I'm in. He loves that. Notice chapter 9, verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, there it is, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. People are ashamed of the words of Jesus. Verse 35, when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus has the veil of his flesh pulled back and Peter, James, and John see the glory of eternal God in the face and apparel of Christ and a voice comes out of heaven and what does God say? This is my son, my chosen one. Look at this. Listen to him. Hear him. Accept it, receive it, believe it. Verse 41. Some demons, verse 40, couldn't be cast out by the disciples. And the guy comes to Jesus and said, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus says, unbelieving and perverted generation. And while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground, threw him into a convulsion. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. What happened? They didn't understand because they lacked the willingness to believe. Notice verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. There it is again. The Son of Man's gonna have to die. He's gonna pay for sin. You are the sinners he's gonna pay, pay for. Let these words sink into your ears. And even that statement was concealed from them. Why? As a judgment for not being able to believe Christ enough to appropriate the, the power that he gave them as apostles to cast out demons. And as a judgment, he kept the reality and depth and beauty and wonder and devotion of even that statement from them, says 45 and 46. Wow. Verse 48. Whoever receives the child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is the greatest. Knowing Jesus receiving Jesus, listening to his words with a soft heart of faith. This is what it means to be great in the kingdom, not a bunch of human earthly assessments of life and whatever you want to believe and philosophies and questions. No, just a willing, childlike, coming to the truth, hearing Jesus, and with ears that hear, you accept it and receive it. That's what true greatness is. Look at chapter 10, verse 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. There it is. The opposite of rejecting Christ is receiving him, listening to him. So eternity does hang on every sermon. If it's a biblical, truth-filled sermon, eternity hangs on the balance even when you speak truth to a friend, when you give them 
the words of Christ, when you say, hey, you need a savior, when you say your sin condition is going to judge you and ruin you, you're on your way to destruction, when you say leave the world and flee to Christ, when you say you cannot save yourself by your own righteousness, when you tell someone your mind is blinded and your eyes are darkened and you cannot see until you turn to Christ, when you say to someone those questions and that intellect and that philosophy and your degrees and all of those assessments and liberal thinking, all of that is keeping you from the truth. You must believe first in the words of Christ and your eyes will be opened. When you say those things, you can't say them playfully, casually, or in gimmicks. There's nothing you can do to open a person's eyes. You give them Jesus. You give them his words and then you pray and God is merciful. Unless you think that you came to Christ because you just took the blinders off on your own. That is foolish. God can hide the truth from any human being, and he does. He often does. You say, well, then how does anybody get saved? You plead for mercy. Plead for God to open your eyes, and I always tell people that. Don't, don't, you know, sort of sentimentally come up to Jesus and say, you're my homeboy, I invite you into my life. You go to God and you plead for him to save you from your blindness and your darkened heart. You ask God to be merciful to you, an unworthy blasphemer. Apart from Christ, you're a blasphemer. Every sinner is. And so we must always be living our lives for the sake of being his mouthpiece. You're his mouthpiece. And that is how Luke begins this section. Jesus sets the bar for ministry, for personal service to him. Jesus sets the mark of what it means to faithfully be a church, a local church light in a community, to be a Christian in the midst of the unbelieving people around you. Jesus sets the bar. He hands that to the disciples, and those disciples handed it to us. The task has always been the same. And so, in, in just the few remaining minutes we have, let me just tell you where we're going, and then we'll just examine just a couple of things in the next few weeks, we're just going to look at verses 1 to 21, and, and we're just going to pull out the marks of a ministry that speaks the truth and prays that God opens hearts. A faithful servant and a faithful ministry looks like what? What does it look like? What are its marks? Here they are. First, it is outreaching. You see that in chapter 8, verse 1. It came about soon afterwards that he began going about from one city and village to another. Notice that the 12 were with him, and from here on out, he's sending the disciples out. And so that is, that is the outreaching of the church. Look, if you love Christ, you will give the truth to other people. You don't try to invite the culture into the church with gimmicks. You go get the culture with the truth. That's what you do. You don't worry about whether they accept it or reject it. You, you're burdened for them. You pray for them. But evangelicalism has become such a circus. It is just um, shocking, but you know, in, in some ways not surprising now, having done it for so long as, a, as an evangelical slide into gimmicks. But it is still nonetheless shocking that so much 
of evangelicalism professes to be giving the gospel, and yet we think we're the ones that can take the blinders off and open the ears. You cannot give anyone ears to hear. All you can do is give them Jesus. Straightforward, unadulterated, give them Christ. Jesus spoke himself. They either accepted or rejected based upon the work God was doing. The disciples spoke Jesus Christ based upon what God was doing. They either accepted or rejected. And that mantle was handed to everyone who comes to Christ. And that's the only way you came to Christ. Faithful ministry is always outreaching. And I love that. It goes all the way back to what Abraham was told in Genesis 12, verse 3. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to touch every culture on the earth, on the globe. I'm going to touch every nation, every people. I'm going to send my people globally with my truth, and I'm going to open ears and open eyes so that families of the earth from all the globe, through all human history, in all cultures, there will be open eyes and open ears and there will be forgiven sinners who have accepted and received Jesus Christ for who he says he is. They'll do it by faith. I'm going to do that. And then the Great Commission, Jesus said to the disciples, go into all the world and make disciples. Just go. And, and making disciples means teaching them about me and to observe all that I've commanded. And then that came down to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, you will be the first witnesses when you're clothed with power, and then you're going to hand that mantle to the other witnesses, and you're going all the way to the remotest part of the earth. This has always been the mark of a faithful servant and a faithful ministry. You don't dress up the gospel. You don't try to attract the culture with gimmicks. You don't soften it's a fence. You just let ears be stopped up or open, depending on what God wants to do. You just give them the truth. People sometimes come here and they say, you, just, you guys just don't have any of the cool things going on that other churches have going on. I know. I know. We're, we're, we're trying to get out of the way of the truth. Can you imagine if you arrive and meet your Lord, and he has to say to you that there were numerous opportunities for the truth to open ears, but you got in between that. Because you would not do what is done here. Notice the method. Proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. So the second thing we notice about the ministry is that it is Christ-exalting. We proclaim and preach the kingdom of God. Two words here, and they're stuck together, and it's just marvelous. One means herald. You're the mouthpiece. That means you don't make up the message. You don't come up with the message. You don't dress up the message. You don't figure out how you want to say the message. You don't become some fancy communicator for the message to enhance it, dress it up, make it more powerful. A herald speaks as a mouthpiece for the king. That's the first word here. Okay, Russo, it is, it's like if you grew up in a small town and there was a green and a square and, and the official of the town had a notice to speak, he came to his herald and he said, you are the uh, Arcadian, you're the voice to the people, so here's what I want you to do, I want you to say these words to them. So you went out in the middle of the square and you were the crier and you said, get into the circle 
and even in the Old English, hear ye, hear ye. Listen up. There is a, an official edict. That's what you do. A faithful minister exalts Christ by merely being his mouthpiece. Preachers are proclaimers. Christians are proclaimers. We're heralds. The Puritans understood that as the method in spades. They just got it. Cotton Mather was a 17th century preacher. This is what he said. The office of the ministry, Christian ministry, rightly understood, is the most honorable and important that any man in the whole world can ever sustain. He's just thinking about his own pastoral ministry. And it will be one of the wonders of eternity to consider the reasons why the wisdom and goodness of God assigned this office to imperfect and guilty men. The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. Can you imagine thinking of ministry that way? When people come in that door, I'm not interested in games or circus shows. We want to see the Spirit of God restore the dominion of God in their soul. Have you ever seen it happen? Have you ever seen the blinders come off? Right in front of you? I know if you're a Christian, it happened to you. But have you ever watched it happen when God uses you as a mouthpiece? You get out of the way and you just speak Jesus and you say, here it is. Here's what Jesus says. Here's who he says he is. Here's what he's saying to you. He's calling you to repent and believe. And then the Spirit of God takes someone maybe you didn't even think or imagine would ever come. And suddenly that hardened person, the blinders come off, the ears open. And it's supernatural because the next time you see them, they have this grin on their face. You say, what's going on? They don't even know how to explain it. I don't know. Suddenly those words make sense to me. It just opened up. Suddenly I have this pull it's not religion. It's not gimmicks. And, and it's interesting because sometimes even in your selfishness, you, you get a little jealous when they just toss you aside and suddenly you're no longer an issue. They love Christ. They go right past you to the Lord. And you're thinking, hey, what about me? I'm the one who told you about that. <laughs> it's the most miraculous, most wonderful thing to watch. And then even as Christians, there you are discipling someone what are you afraid of? It's the most glorious privilege to restore the dominion of Christ in the hearts of God's people. You're a mouthpiece. Your ministry should be like Jesus's was. He, he exalted the glory of the Son of Man, the glory of the Son of God, the glory of his Father. He just exalted it and said, believe it. And when people didn't believe it, he thanked his heavenly Father for keeping it from them, as Luke chapter 11 says. I praise you, O oh Father, for hiding this from the proud. Is that the way you are? Or when somebody hardens you, you start getting all shaken up. Oh, I got to do something. You cannot do anything except speak the truth. Be the herald. That's your method. And then this other term is so marvelous. The preaching of the kingdom. That's the translation, but it is the word for evangelize or bring good news, good tidings. You bring the best news of all. What news? That the power of the kingdom is available. The kingdom has, as we'll talk about next week, this sort of stretched, marvelous, wonderful mystery to it. And the fullness of 
Christ on his throne with his people in an actual earthly kingdom hasn't even come yet. But Jesus says, look, the kingdom is among you. Remember Matthew 12? He even says, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom is in your midst. It's come upon you. What kingdom? It's not even an earthly kingdom yet. No, but the power of the kingdom is staring you in the face. And that is power to open your ears or power to close them. That is kingdom power to open your eyes of faith or harden your heart. You better listen up, he says. Take heed to how you listen. Even as a disciple of Christ, are you thrilled that every day when you come to the word of God, there's kingdom power available to you in Christ? power that has transformed you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son? Pilate would say to Jesus, so uh, you're a king? He said, it's correct what you say. But he said, where's your kingdom? If my kingdom were of this world, then my subjects would be using military might to try to take over your capital city. I have a kingdom. I am a king presently. And I am ruling as the sovereign one, just like I've always ruled. But kingdom power is upon you. Kingdom power is in your midst. Kingdom power has arrived. The power to transform lives and the power to harden hearts. And you need to listen because it's not of this realm. You will never see it unless you believe it. You will never see it unless you just accept the words of Jesus. At face value, because of who he is. When you do that, then your eyes and ears will be opened. Jesus went around in his ministry and then sent his disciples around in the ministry with the same method, preaching and giving good news of the kingdom power that was in their midst. No gimmicks, no human ingenuity, no human power to do anything calling people to faith as a mouthpiece. That was the disciples' task. That's your task. If you're a Christian, that's your task. Do you know what it results in? This this outreaching ministry, this Christ-exalting ministry in both method and message, you know what it results in? Notice what Luke does. And also with the 12, there were some women. I love this. They'd been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. What's that all about? We'll talk about that next week. That is the most staggering thing. Tormented by a demon was bizarre enough. Tormented by seven and in total bondage. She's healed from all seven. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward... And Susanna and many others, that is to say women, who were contributing to their support, to the support of Jesus and the disciples and this preaching ministry out of their private means. So here we have a third characteristic of a faithful servant and a faithful ministry. It is a sacrificing or a worshiping ministry of devotion. Why does he include this here? Two reasons, very quickly. One is because Mary Magdalene and Johanna, the wife of Cusa, And Susanna, these are women who go from Jesus' beginning of of when they were healed all the way to the resurrection, right? They're the first ones that see Jesus alive. They're the first ones to see the tomb empty. 
Why is that important? Because women weren't allowed to publicly testify. So the only way that the witness of these women is going to be important with the resurrection is if people know they were with him all the way from the time they were healed and they never left him. They were devoted to him. They sacrificed for him. They served his ministry. They even paid for his ministry, the end of verse 3 says, out of their own wealth. They were with Jesus from the moment they were saved all the way to the end. What a thrilling example of what it means to see the fruit of an open faith, eyes that are open, ears that hear. They just promote the ministry, worship, devote themselves, sacrifice. You say, what's the second reason? Don't you remember what he had just recorded in Luke chapter 7? To the sinful woman who was forgiven? What was she doing? Worshiping. The mark of a faithful servant of Christ who has ears to hear is always serving, worshiping, promoting gospel ministry, moving gospel ministry forward. People say to me all the time, I, I, yeah, I, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I'm born again. Where do you go to church? What do you mean? You say, well, I've been burned by the church. Here's what I ask them. Has Jesus Christ ever burned you? Because someone who lives with eyes and ears of faith is devoted to Jesus. And if you're devoted to Jesus, you're devoted to the proclamation of truth. And if you're devoted to the proclamation of truth, you're devoted to the light, the gospel, the local ministry, the corporate gathering, the worshiping of God's people. You're, you're devoted to them. You're devoted to all of it. You even sacrifice time and resources and all the gifts you've been given for the sake of its continuation. All a Christian who's really faithful wants to know is, is the word of Christ going forth and are people believing it? That's all we want to know. You don't get up every day and say, what's the world doing? How do I get, you know all I can hear? How do I achieve all I can hear? How do I dress up the gospel and make us acceptable? How do we make the church more likable? No, you pray that God opens eyes and ears. You proclaim, you reach out, you Christ exalt, and you promote sacrificially devotion to Christ. And you see it right here at the very beginning. Jesus sets the bar. And you know what? When you give that message, some of that seed of the gospel is going to fall on ground that doesn't produce fruit. And some of it's going to fall on good soil. And so it becomes, as we'll see next time, fourthly, a polarizing ministry. People say, you guys are always so polemical. You're always so driven. You're always so definitive. You're always so meticulous and precise. Listen. We can't afford not to be because we don't want to get in the way of the truth. And all I want to know is, what's the state of the ear that's hearing this? That's all I want to know. And if you harden against it, you will perhaps find yourself being hidden from the truth. God can do it, and frighteningly, that's what you and I are going to see he does that very thing with some. Beloved, you can't remove the blinders whenever you want to. You can't say, I'll do it whenever I choose. God is in control of removing those blinders. 
And he mercifully does it when you hear the truth. So respond to the truth. Don't harden your heart. Listen. Take heed to how you listen and plead with God for the faith to receive it. Soften your heart. Get rid of whatever keeps you from Christ. And if you want to be a part of a ministry that is committed to those things, you got one right here. You come back 100 years from now, I hope we'll be doing the same thing. So we will have pounded this into our grandkids and great-grandkids. If the Lord should tarry, wouldn't it be great? Devotion to Christ, outreaching, Christ-exalting in message and method right here. Gospel of the power of the kingdom, the words of Christ, how are you hearing? Because eternity is at stake in every sermon. Your mouthpiece. What are you doing about it? Polarization is next time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opening of these sections from Luke's gospel. So much yet to see, so much yet to hear. Lord, right now, I just pray your mercy upon every eye and every ear in this room. There are a thousand excuses thrown up and none of them will mean anything to you, the judge. When the word is so clearly spoken by you, so clearly proclaimed by the local church ministry, it is the words that will judge people in the end. Lord, in your mercy, Don't harden hearts this morning. Soften them. Draw them by conviction. Cause them to be broken in their pride and foolishness. Make them know this is about you. Not about anybody else. Not about the world. It's not about philosophy, man's wisdom, liberalism, any other religious ideology. It's not even about weak and and imperfect people who know Christ, who are the mouthpiece. It's not even about that. It's just about the truth. And Lord, I pray that you'd soften hearts to hear it, open blind eyes to see it. And help us, Lord, as saved people to be outreaching and Christ exalting and sacrificing and worshiping. May we be out of the way and heralds of this great good news of the power to transform a heart. And we thank you for the privilege. It's undeserved. We confess that we are miserable mouthpieces at times. Thank you for your grace. Make us faithful, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.